This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. First, I want to thank public programs for the opportunity to um, give this talk tonight. I very much appreciate the chance to be here and to be in this very lovely space, um, sitting with the art um, as I talk about art as inquiry. Also, um, I really want to thank all of you for coming because it's pretty, like, yuck <laughs> outside. Um, and. I really value your time and the chance to speak with you. Also, I really want to say that I appreciate the opportunity to sit here and talk about things that um, we develop and teach in the MFA program that I'm part of here. In fact, this work of inquiry is pretty much what we do on a daily basis. And so it's really nice to be able to talk to you about things that um, are sort of fundamental and a part of what I always do. Um, and it makes me think about them in a different way. Um, I sort of take them for granted. And so the experience of putting this talk together is a way of like really seeing into that. How do I help to make it make sense to you? So you'll let me know after I finish tonight how well I've done in that <laughs> and where my areas of improvement might be. Um, for me, the process of inquiry, um, I'm very much a writer, even though I also do text image work and other things. So I have a lot of notes here, and I'm going to definitely be checking in with them to track my way through all this. Um, for me, the process of inquiry is very much tied to the work um, that I do in my own work and that we do here in creating a conversation across the arts, which what I mean by that is putting artists in literally in conversation with each other to see what happens um, when you actually talk. Inquiry and conversation go together. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes, but I did want to set that frame. I think that those two things working in relationship each other, with each other help artists to better, one, articulate their work, and two, to more deeply, to more uh, strategically develop um, their own work as well. Um, so when I'm talking about inquiry, I'm really talking in a lot of ways about getting inside what um, another artist does, about stepping inside the work and what artists do, what they pursue, what they need to learn, need to know, need to grapple with, need to sustain in order to be able to make work. It's a kind of funny thing for me to, to sit and talk about that for an hour because inquiry for me is very much a doing and a making process. Um, configured differently, we'd all be sitting here doing a set of things right now and then we'd see how well they worked. So that I hope in a way as I talk, I can help you imagine how you might actually 
also be doing or how later you might be able to go back and do some of what I'm talking about. Um, so I wanted to begin in a, in a certain kind of doing. I wanted to read you a little bit of an excerpt from a work in progress um, that I'm developing because I'm very much in the inquiry of it. And I think it can help set the stage a little bit for some of the items that I'll, that I'll talk about throughout the piece. Um, and coincidentally, it arises from um, the exhibit that got mentioned in the introduction that Alex gave me about four years ago, 2014, I curated an exhibit called The Landscape of Memory. It was an interdisciplinary art exhibit um, with a lot of different range of visual work, and also we had a set of readings that accompanied, accompanied it. But one of the things that I did in the exhibit was I asked a series of artists and students who were participating in the exhibit to create memory boxes. I literally gave everybody a paper mache box, including Paula, my friend and <laughs> co-worker here who helped make one for it. Um, and I asked the artist to think about how they could contain a memory or could perhaps revisit a memory by containing it in a box. Some of the artists did, did it, some of them didn't, but it was a wonderful addition to the exhibit. At that time, I didn't create a box. Um, and it's one of those things that I always kind of felt bad about, like wish I would have done that. And um, so a couple of months ago, I thought, well, what if I create a box in words? Would that sort of solve my desire to do it? And so this has been my quest for a little bit. What if I create a memory box in words? And so one memory box became two memory boxes, became three memory boxes. I now have 35 pages of memory boxes um, of three or four different boxes at this point. Um, so the, it's, the piece is kind of spiraling a bit, <laughs> maybe out of control. Um, but I wanted to read to you just an, ex um, an, a, an excerpt from the first part. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about how it relates to inquiry. Memory box one. Yellow room. I enter the yellow room. Literally, I am in the drawing room of the Sohn Museum in Hoborn in London. Sohn, an influential and wealthy architect, secured an act of parliament in 1833, which required his home be kept as much as it could be like it was at the time of his death, and it mostly has been. I am there in 2014 because my colleague, Karen Lipschitz, an expert in 18th century domestic spaces, has said Sohn painted the room its incredible yellow because he could. The walls bear one of the first yellow paints that didn't oxidize and turn black, the BAB, the British American Business website reports. Contemporary designer Jim Gosling says, Tim Gosling says, the spectacle of walking into a room that glows yellow must have been extraordinary. And it was. But as I stand in the 200-year-old yellow room, I also enter another room, my bedroom on Hubbard Drive in Dayton, Ohio. I, too, painted my room yellow because I could. Sohn got access to more reliable paint, now called Sonian yellow. I got 
coveted space. The room was so yellow, it was almost more than yellow. It was brighter than daffodils, more electric than lemon, sharper than sunshine. And like him, I wanted the color to permeate, to be everything. By doing the walls, the upholstery, and the curtains in one color, without fringed and complicated accessory, it became very contemporary, Gosling's set of Soane's room. But in my memory, the commitment, perhaps obsession, was not to design, but to color. It was a way to signify myself. The yellow had one hue, strong, forceful. I am looking a long way back. In that room, I was 17. The room had two metal closet doors and I painted them yellow. I also painted the bookshelves bracketed to the walls yellow. I hung wispy see-through yellow polka dot curtains. I put the box spring and full-size mattress on the floor, pushing them, pushing them against the yellow wall so there was a window above my head and another near my feet so sunshine could cover all of me. I placed yellow sheets and pillowcases on the mattress and covered it in a yellow duvet. The room also had an alcove, which I also painted yellow. There was a wood desk in it, and it was also yellow. But I'm not sure if I painted it that way or if my mind just colors it now. But the floor lamp that flagged it was absolutely yellow. The room was upstairs and around the corner. It was an oasis and perhaps an island separate from the rest of the house. I turned left at the top of the stairs and followed the banister all the way around. I could step out the window and stand on the roof of the garage. My parents' room was on the other side of the house. The room was designated as my mother's sewing room, though she always did the mending downstairs in the gold chair in the TV room or on the white couch in the living room. It had also been deemed my father's office, but he worked in his actual office at another house, which he'd converted into an office space, or at the dining room table in our house. We moved into the house when I was eight, and I believed the room was going to be mine. Then for years, it was mostly unused and wasn't made available to me. Instead, I had to share a room with my sister. When my sister decided to go to college, I announced I was moving into the back room. Not willing to claim our shared space as my own, I wanted to make my own space. And I overtook the space with yellow. It was a color you could not ignore. It was a color that claimed the space. Yellow said, this room will stand out. According to Gosling, Sohn even designed lanterns with yellow stained glass sections so the sculptures could be bathed in what he called Mediterranean glow. The drawing room was intended to make guests feel like they were walking into the sunniness of Rome or Pompeii, he said. Sohn was drawn to the sun. I was driven by instinct. Right now, I do not remember anything that happened in that room only the color. It told everyone, I am here. I radiate. I wanted to start with this piece because um, I'll come back to it hopefully at the end. But I wanted to start with it because I don't really know where this is going. I just know three things. One is, I'm curious about this thing of what is it to try to box in something? 
What is it to box a memory? Second, what is it, this two things, this is something that I'll come to several times here in the talk, these two things in relationship with each other. Soane's room, which I went to in 2014, I didn't tell you here, I didn't tell the whole truth, I went back to see it when I went to London this year because I wanted to make sure I remembered it <laughs> and that it still looks the same that I thought. Um, so what is this Soane's room, this like gazillionaire architect in 1833 London and me in my 17-year-old seven, my self in this room in Ohio? What is that relationship? What is the relationship between the yellows? What is the relationship between the rooms? Is there one? But it's really this thing of yellow. What does it mean to stay with the yellow and see where it leads me since it's the thing that predominates. For me, the art of inquiry and what I'm sort of trying to emulate here in this moment is that inquiry is something that you do. It is a practice that invites you into a reflective habit. I'm a writer, so I care what words mean. So before we go on, I think we need to talk about what do these words mean? What does it mean to have a practice of inquiry? What does the word practice mean? Well, I looked it up for us. Practice means habitual or customary performance, an operation like a legal practice, a therapeutic practice, a writing practice, an artistic habit. So a thing that we do regularly, that we show up to and do regularly. But it also means habit or custom. So something perhaps habit, like that we do daily. I have a habit of a latte every day. You can pretty much count on the beginning of the day by the fact that before 10 o'clock, there's gonna be a cup in my hand with a latte and I'm gonna drink it. I have a habit, I write with a pencil. If I go to a meeting and I don't have a pencil, I have to leave the meeting and go get a pencil <laughs> because it bothers me to write with a pen. So there are habits and obsessive habits, but habits, things that we rely on. And then there's custom. There's a wonderful book by the writer Julia Alvarez called Something to Declare. And in it, she talks about custom and declaration for writers, that in order to be a writer, in essence, in many ways, you have to know your customs so that you can find what you have to declare. Customs. Some people have the custom of taking off their shoes when they come into a house or into a living space. We have customs around holidays and weddings and funerals and all kinds of things like that. So we have practice that's habit, we have practice that's custom, and then repeated performance or systematic exercise for the purpose of acquiring skill or proficiency. So we have habit and custom in the, in the working toward trying to get better at something. You see, we're already in inquiry here. We're already trying to figure out 
what we mean by what we're saying. So inquiry is a process of questioning, probing, seeking. Again, the definition, a seeking or request for truth, information or knowledge. I love this word request. Inquiry is a request to whom? To whom, for what? <laughs> for truth. I'm doing an inquiry as a request for truth. How does that sound like something to do? It's also an investigation. So we move from a seeking and a requesting to an investigation. Like, I, you know, I'm working on a, I'm working on a mystery novel. So like, I'm seeing crime scenes in my <laughs> in my head when I say that. But investigate suggests not just this sort of like purely energetic spiritual seeking, but this sort of particular, maybe even systematic investigation. It's also the act of inquiring, questioning, query. There's another one that stands out for me. What's a query? What's a question? Query feels like maybe a softer question, a softer way of being in inquiry. I'm going through all these definitions because I'm wondering what's happening inside you when you hear them? Which of these words are you associating to? And where are you going with them? So the way I put it together, so in the arts there is the opportunity to follow, engage a habit or custom, to acquire the skill of querying, seeking, probing. For what? That's the thing I didn't answer yet. I'm, we're still in the like, what are we doing sort of thing. For what? Why? Do we want to engage this seeking habit, trying to get better at? We want to do it because I believe inquiry is what leads us to what we have to say, whatever it is. However, as artists, we define that, whether that's the literal making of the thing, whether it's the understanding of what we have to say. But without inquiry, we don't really know what we have to say, and we don't know what it means. So the real value of inquiry is that it takes us to what we have to say, but allows us to understand what it means, what the meaning of the work is. So then I looked up the word meaning, and it talked about the significance. I liked that. I never thought of that word significance and meaning together. And then I thought, yes, that's right. What is the significance of what we make? Some people might talk about the urgency of the work or the relevance of the work. Um, but it's a way of saying, how does the word connect us beyond ourselves? So inquiry is that process that takes us to the work and to what the, the work means for us and perhaps can mean for others. A sidebar, for me, it feels like we're really talking about curiosity, that inquiry becomes a kind of commitment to curiosity. But then I looked up curiosity and there was this line in it, the, the definition that said, curiosity expresses only the desire 
to know. Inquisitive, the effort to find out by inquiry. So here, I'm not understanding curiosity correctly. It's inquisitiveness that has the action in it to go beyond the knowing into the more. Um, again, I'm playing with these words because I want to invite you to take them on. I'm going to tell you a lot about what I think inquiry is and how I go about doing it, how I offer the process to others, how it could relate to you both artistically and in your life. Because all of these things that I'm talking about, about in relationship to the arts, are all things that you can do in relationship to any question that you have in your life. But I also want to invite you to think about what your sense of them is, what your associations are, and to the biases and assumptions that arise in you as you sit with these words. You're learning things about me, about how I perceive the world by the words that I'm latching on to. I like, I'm attracted to habit and custom. You know, what is that, what is that revealing about me? I'm willing to learn that inquisitive, even though I don't, I think it's an uglier word than curiosity, um, might be more correct. What does it say about you? What are you telling yourself by the words that you associate to and feel connected to? Because how you stand in relationship to those things also says something about how you're going to engage inquiry. I want to give you a further example of how inquiry and the conversation across the arts intersect and why, for me, they're important. One, one of the things I've really thought about in preparing this, um, this talk is how so many of the things that I refer to related to inquiry are about putting two or more things in relationship to each other. It comes up over and over again. I did it in the, in the yellow rooms. I'm going to do it now in talking about um, a relationship that I've had with Alonzo King at Lines Ballet. You'll see it in some of the ways that I talk about um, some items later related to how you, how you take on inquiry. I'm going to talk about play and all of those things. Most of those things have a connection to putting two things in relationship to each other. And so that's a piece that's really standing out for me, how important it is in, in inquiry to have to have more than one thing as a catalyst to spark the movement forward in something. As artists, we are makers, we gather tools, materials, we rely on habits, processes, but what allows our making to join with meaning? I think that's where inquiry sits. And so I wanna give you an example of that. Um, a number of years ago, after we had started the MFA, I had the opportunity um, to bring Alonzo King here to work with our students. And as part of that, I had the chance to sit in sometimes on um, some rehearsals that Alonzo was doing. Um, uh, you know, as they were as they were putting together their um, their various performances, and um, I did a little bit of writing about it. Um, if you're familiar with Alonzo King, you know that he's um, 
a beautiful human being and makes um, amazing work. If not, I really want to encourage you. I can tell you, and you can tell those of you who are able to see here by looking at me, I'm not much of a, a dance uh you know, persona. <laughs> I think the last time I like wore a tutu, I was about five. <laughs> um, but I love being in Alonzo's presence. And so one of the things I want to say here about the nature of inquiry is, you know, are you able to put yourself in relationship to things that are not necessarily yours um, and see what you can learn from, learn from them? And I'm very, I'm very grateful for the opportunity that I, I've had and continue to have to, um, to learn from Alonzo. I went to this rehearsal, um, this is probably uh, maybe five or six years ago, Alonzo was um, preparing Scheherazade um, for his fall season. And I was sitting in the rehearsal and one of the very first things he asked the dancers is what can you contribute? And that's a question that really sat with me. And it wasn't about, no, I think the question was, how can I contribute more? Um, and it was a question directly to the dancers that they got to see in an eye. Not like, I will tell you how you can contribute more, but how do you step inside yourself and decide how you can contribute more? It didn't surprise me, I wrote, that Alonzo focused on the inner performance rather than the physical one. In my conversations with him, he's avoided the labels offered to him, such as choreographer or, or director. Instead, he identifies as artist, sure that all artists tap into and draw from the same creative sources, whatever their mediums. Artists always have the chance to bring themselves all the way into their work, he believes, to not hold back, to not resist, in every moment to make a maximum contribution. Um, and he goes on to talk with the dancers various ways throughout the, the rehearsal about needing clarity and the importance of contrast and commitment, etc. cetera. Um, Alonzo's approach speaks to the value for, art, for artists as learners and professionals in training and practice to speak across the disciplines to each other. I want to see change, Alonzo said, then looking at two of his dancers went on, I need to see the character within your movements. He talked about how for a character to work, clarity and contrast must be visible. For me, I think he might be teaching a fiction writing class. These are exactly the sort of things that we talk about with writers. Then he says, we need fervor. and then ask them if they understand what he means. Because he knows, unless he's able to get their buy-in around meaning, they won't be able to achieve what he hopes they will. After the rehearsal, I looked up, I already identified as a dictionary habit. <laughs> After the rehearsal, I looked up fervor. Not surprisingly, it means two somewhat related things. One, warmth or glow, a radiating heat, and two, intense heat, intensity and heat. Its meanings come from the Latin, F-E-R-V-O-R, -E meaning heat, and F-E-R-V-E-R-E, -E -E, 
to glow boil. Fervor heats from within and moves out. Fervor is the artist's path to clarity and contrast. I'm reading this to you because this is where I want you to see inquiry alive. I watch what happens in the rehearsal. I reflect on what I see and experience, and then I leap in my own. I'm now telling you what's coming up for me, what I'm putting together. Clarity radiates out, obliterating any line or space between the person and the character, the story and the performance, the dancer and the dance. Contrast is conflict and intense heat within stories. Characters and our layers of being that unsettle us and require us to act. Fervor manifests art, taking us beyond the process of contribution to the act of commitment. With fervor, we contribute all that we can. Whenever the dancers were able to give more, Alonzo, Alonzo would always acknowledge them. If he liked their intensity or liked what he saw, he'd say something. And then as the dancers moved across the floor, he would say, stay with it. Stay with it. Don't relax. If there was ever a line for inquiry, that's it. Stay with it. Stay with it. Don't relax. Not meaning be anxious, uptight, worry about it, but stay with it. Stay with it. See where it leads. Which leads me to my next point, which is how do you trust the process of doing that? How do you be willing to have the habit of questioning and be willing to stay with it? Another thing that came up for me when I was, when I was thinking about this talk was a really wonderful book by Rebecca Solnit called A Field Guide for Getting Lost. And... Um, actually, I'm going to go back. I want to say one more thing about Alonzo. There are three things that I wanted to make a point about in terms of um, uh, in terms of what to take from the conversation across the art into inquiry. One is the idea of exposure, what the work exposed me too, and can't expose you to. Um, watching the dancers dance, watching Alonzo, remember him taking his hand and moving it through a wall that wasn't there, but it was so convincing that I could see the mud coming down from the wall as his hand moved through it. There was something about belief there that made me believe. I took that into myself. I now carry it with me as something that I can use to inquire into. The second is the reflection that comes from the exposure that you get from another artist, from another practice, from some kind of learning. And how you can put that expo the exposure and the reflection together to bring it into your own work. So for me, the question that comes out of the experience with Alonzo is, if I see what shapes another art and why, 
what can apply to me? What can I do with the thoughts, ideas, feelings, experiences that are evoked inside me when I watch the art and listen to what is said about it? So inquiry does two things. It takes us into our work, but it also takes us toward what it means to be an artist. It invites the interplay between art and art making, between making art and what art is for. All forms of art offer us something to take in and learn from. But art always gives us the chance to think about the individual piece that is being made and also how we want to be as artists in the world. Both of those things are alive at both times, or alive all the time. So now, how do you trust that process? How do you trust that you're in a constant, again, I'm back to the two things in relationship. Inquiry is always taking us towards something that we're working to create. It's also helping us to think about, be reflective on, to make decisions about how we want to be an artist. And what I mean by how I want to be an artist, I mean, how do I want to be an artist that, is an, that has a relationship to the world in some way? How do I be an artist that is in some way connected to more than myself? Those are decisions that we make all the time in the making of work. We have to do inquiry, I think, in order to genuinely make the work that is ours. And we also use the inquiry to help us to understand the relationship that that work has to the world and to others, because it's part of helping us to understand what it is. That's a little convoluted, but hopefully that got through. So how do you trust that process? Now I'll go back to Solnit. Um, in a field guide to getting lost, she says, leave the door open for the unknown, the door into the dark. That's where the most important things come from. She's really talking in this chapter about 19th century explorers, but I think we can extrapolate it into the arts. It's vital to stay and be with the unknown, Solnit writes, for it is not, after all, really a question about whether you can know the unknown, arrive in it, but how to go about looking for it, how to travel. She quotes Thoreau saying that a man only has to close his eyes once and be turned around completely in order to get lost. It's that easy, she says. And it takes that much trust. That's exactly what inquiry is. Are you willing to be turned around once <laughs> and have to go through the open door? Can you stay with it and stay with it? Are you willing to step into the unknown, see what emerges, and have the belief that it will take you where you need to go. I think it's why 
it's often important to do inquiry in a community of artists by people do it in groups or workshops or degrees because it's hard to be lost alone. But in community, you can share what it means to be lost. And at the same time, you can have a shared experience of being lost while you just get to be lost yourself. One of the things that I love about this piece from Solnit is she says, 19th century explorers were willing to get lost because they remained optimistic that they would survive and would finally find their way. I love that. I love that. To remain optimistic that you will finally find your way. Not if you have the correct map or your iPhone sent to the right navigation or if you've got four people telling you what to do. But that you engage the process fully and you believe that it will take you where you need to go it's that simple and it's that hard what's a way to engage inquiry what's a way to navigate develop what's a way to develop the trust let me say it like that i think it has to do with play with being in play the great thing about play is it doesn't have an agenda. It's about starting where you start and letting yourself go where you go. The director, Am Bogart, in a really nice book, and then you act, making art in an unpredictable world. She talks about a lot of interesting things, but two of them are, one is intention and the other is attention. So when you enter an inquiry, when you begin the process of making a piece of art, and you ask yourself, what should you be conscious of or what might you be conscious of about what you are creating and what you might expect in return, while at the same time thinking about the kind of receptiveness in others that you're trying to cultivate. So again, this idea of focusing on what you make, but also focusing on the relationship, the connection, the meaning, the hope for the work. If you put those two things in play with each other, how does it help you steer, navigate, sustain the inquiry? Another is, um, one of the things I like about this talk is it's made me think about all these really interesting things I've read and that I carry around in my mind. Um, another of them is a lovely essay by the poet Mary Oliver called Building a House. And Oliver in her essay says, stepping away from actions where one knows one's measure is good it shakes away an excess of seriousness. I like this phrase, stepping away from actions where one knows one's measure. You have to really read it. Stepping away from actions where one knows one's measure. In essence, are you willing 
to do things that challenge you. She's really talking in this essay about building a house. She's a poet. I think it's a little bit more like a shack than a house, but it's a literal building. And she's working with a builder, but she's doing it. How willing are you in the pursuit of your art to step out of your measure? When we first went to Lyons Ballet, the first time we did a workshop, all of us, I forget how many of us were there that day, maybe 12, um, we all danced. Alonzo didn't allow that being in the room with him for three hours, you moved. And you moved in all the ways that he asked you to move. It had absolutely nothing to do with whether you were any good at it. It had simply to do with stepping into the experience for many of us, me much included, of stepping um, beyond my measure. <laughs> um, and yet, the embodiment of that is what I carry forward. I had a similar experience many, many years ago when I was a graduate student in England and worked with um, a resident director at the National Theater who was a big fan of Stanislavski. Same kind of thing, where we were put through a series of exercises, all very physical, but having to do with trust, belief, and commitment. What art form doesn't require inquiry into trust, belief, and commitment. But doing the actions, giving ourselves over to them, was a way to embody that. What I took away from that experience all these years later is that I needed to talk out loud to make people alive. So whenever I create characters, I talk. If you stop by my house when I'm writing, you would think there are several of us <laughs> there because we're all chatting. <laughs> um, but I learned to do that because I stepped out of my measure into someone else's way of being in art and found a process that worked for me. Again, this is what inquiry is. It's these things that help us move toward the work, directly and indirectly toward the work. Another example is um, an ongoing account of the work where love of distraction pervades. This comes from my understanding of the work of Myra Callum, a writer, visual artist. A number of years ago, the Contemporary Jewish Museum did a retrospective of Callum's work, which is one of the most eclectic set of like hand, hand-sewn doilies and different kinds of maps and paint and, I mean, a really wonderful array of work. Callum's quite known for a visual blog that she did for the New York Times the year that Barack Obama was um, elected president for a year every month. She did a visual blog related to, um, it was called And the Pursuit of Happiness on Democracy. It's one of the most eclectic views of Democracy might be nice to revisit in this particular time. But the catalog for the exhibit here in San Francisco said, Callum uses writing and drawing to render an ongoing account of the world as she sees it. Hers is a daily discipline of creativity based on photography, travel, research, walking, talking, open observation. A serious love of distraction pervades. Again, two things. 
an ongoing account and attending to the detail of the work in front of you while letting distraction pervade. Paying attention, paying attention, whoops, veering off. What happens when those two things go in relationship to each other? Play is a process that lets things go where they go. It helps set a framework for working, but it lets what emerge need to emerge. Play is the willingness to follow the moment and to let go. So, to let go, but to keep going back to stay with it, stay with it, don't relax. Stay with it, stay with it, don't relax. Get lost, let go, stay with it, stay with it, don't relax. Um, I wanted to talk about one more thing. Um, in my evolution of using inquiry both as a teacher and as an artist, um, I really feel like it involves what I would call a close way of seeing into paying attention to how we see. The great thing about seeing is if we really think about it, if we really try to see, we get the chance to both understand what we see and what we don't see. And both can be instructive for our, our movement forward as artists. So I wanted to explain a little bit. It's really interesting to me that so much of this talk is having me draw back to things that I've carried with me for a long, long time. The Yellow Room when I was 17, the idea of working with my mentor, Elliot Coleman, when I was 21. When I was 21, I, I went to, I had the opportunity to go to England and work on my master's degree, and I worked with a mentor, Elliot Coleman, who had been um, the director of the writing programs at Johns Hopkins for a gazillion years. I was 21, I think Elliot was 72, something like that. So he had retired from Hopkins, he came, he was, you know, one of those people hanging out as part of our program. And I kind of bought my way into a mentorship with him. I really liked him. And um, I, I learned two things. He liked, or I learned three things. He liked chocolate, he liked flowers, he liked vodka. So each day, I would take some one of those to go visit him. And that would be the conversation starter. Then we'd start talking, and he'd keep talking and talking and talking. And that was how I wormed my way into a mentorship. But Elliot had also had a stroke. And he was a poet, and so he wrote in his mind rather than with his hand. And we formed, ultimately formed, he and I and a couple of others, a little writing group. And each week he would recite for us what he had written for the week. And you could see the wheels turning, how he held it in the mind, how he carried it. And so I want to talk in particular about one, one piece called Remembrances of Princeton. Um, Elliot at that time, I, I think he actually knew he was ill. 
and he was doing a lot of writing, I think, of trying to pull his life together. So he was reflecting back on this summer that he had spent at Princeton. And the piece started out this very long list of all these things that had happened. And he was, you know, trying to make it beautiful, et cetera. And so we'd go back and the list would be whittled down. We'd go back and the list would be whittled down. Finally, the poem became two images. Remembrances of Princeton to Sister Miriam. Beautiful brevities. The small letters of New Testament Greek. And Dr. Einstein eating an ice cream cone on Mercer Street. And so I was so interested in that process of how he landed on that, how he landed on those two images. And each week I saw how he would see, like literally see, being in Princeton. I forget the year. I'm sorry for that because it's important, but I'm going to guess early 1940s. Um, and... He was seeing it, seeing it, seeing it, and then the list would get smaller. And you could see that he was sorting out what really mattered, what really mattered, what really mattered. And then suddenly it pivoted on two things. Because of knowing Eliot, I know that he left the study of the New Testament Greek to become a professor at Hopkins, which was a massive decision for him because he was a gay man moving to a city in the South at a time when you were not a gay man in the South. So it had a huge impact on the next 35 years of his life. And after that summer, I believe was when Einstein went to Los Alamos. And so it was pivotal for him. So the poem all hinges. You don't need to know those two experiences to know that. But it was this process of seeing, and then what I call seeing into the image, looking inside it. Thank you. Um, and then what I call seeing what matters. That's inquiry. Seeing, seeing into, seeing what matters. And you can arrive at the work. I just want to add a little aside about Sister Miriam because she got a nod in there. She's part of the inquiry of the poem. So before Eliot came to London, Sister Miriam was a close friend. He left because he became quite ill. He left London quite abruptly and he went back to stay with Sister Miriam as his health deteriorated. And there were things with a lot of people in Eliot's life that he felt bad about because of decisions that he had made about hiding his identity. He always felt like with certain people he hadn't been truthful enough. So bringing her into the poem, the inquiry of bringing her into the poem is a way of coming full circle a little bit on that. Um, Linda Berry affirms this process. Linda Berry, graphic memoirist, cartoonist. She seems to affirm this process of seeing when she says, place yourself in the image and look around. 
She has a wonderful book called What It Is, suggesting that by looking, we actually see. But my experience is that, that we are seeing, we can train ourselves to also see into. And that will have positive event. That will have positive benefit on what we ultimately create. It's something that I return to over and over again. It's something that I'm testing out in this piece that I'm creating. If I want to find clarity, if I want to make maximum, if I want to contribute maximum benefit to go back to that, if I want to stay with it, if I want to try to get more articulate, I simply ask myself, what do I see? I start there. What do I see? And I mean it quite literally. When you're, even if you're not a visual person, what do I want to create? Where do I want to start? What do I see? And if I stay in that, if I stay in the seeing, like literally, what do I see in my mind? And I follow it. It will lead me to the layers of A, what I know, B, what I need to know, C, what the questions are that tell me <laughs> where I need to go to find what I need to know. What do I see? If you start to unpack that, that's where the work is. So I'm going to come back to the um, yellow room and hopefully try to pull the threads together a little bit. So after the piece I read you, I did some learning about yellow. Yellow is a color, according to my various internet sources, um, that the eye is drawn to. It's also one of the most fatiguing colors. When you keep looking at it, it makes you tired. It's also an irritant. You know, why you put sunglasses on in the sun, stuff like that. It hurts the eyes after a while. I, I, I went back to a book that I had read a number of years ago called Color by Victoria Finlay. It's a really sort of wonderful, eclectic book. A lot of it is about how paints were made many years ago before paints became um, manufactured as they are now. There's a whole chapter about yellow and yellow paints and all that sort of stuff. There's a part of it, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but um, a Cambodian yellow that um, it's like the brightest yellow there is. And it's a very, it was very hard to get it pure because of all the war in Cambodia. It would come with, you know, uh, ash <laughs> from, uh, from guns, et cetera, in it. Um, but then she also talks about that there are lots of yellow things like gourds, unripe pineapple, things like that, yellow foods, in other words, that are actually like 
diuretics. I think there's a line in it that says, you know, you eat one or two of these things, you'll be in the bathroom all day long. So I'm carrying all these associations of yellow as I'm writing, and this is what I write. Beyond, I do some writing about actually these things about learning about yellow, but then the next piece is, I was in a yellow gold kitchen in Pam's house in Winter Park, Florida. It is probably 1983. Elliot, my mentor, has been dead for a couple of years. Elliot promised me when I left London that he'd be there for me, but he died instead. Once again, I feel that fatigue. I do not know this fatigue will rise up several times more in my life. The next when my mother dies in 1988, but in this moment I sit at a small table with Pam, a visual artist and friend, and her mother. I've just met Pam's mother. We drink something, I don't remember what. I feel the humidity. The air is weak yellow and heavy. Pam's mother, a psychic, says, I don't usually do this, especially with someone I hardly know, but there is a man sitting with you. He is all white, white skin, white hair, white beard, and he says he won't leave until I tell you he is with you. The gold tones in the room conflict with the stark white she says she sees. I nod my head, but I don't believe. My experience tells me that when someone dies, they are not with you. They are gone. Yet here I am. So many years later, the contours of the memory, the landscape of the moment, alive and with me, and I'm telling you about it. What, what might the difference have been if I had let myself believe? If I had felt the white within me? I step out of the sewn museum into fresh yellow light. Will I see with my eyes or step more into my mind's eye? Will my eye rest with the white that may be with me or will I stay with the yellow in my mind? Just when I thought I knew where I was going, Got a left turn. There you go. Stay with it. Stay with it. Don't relax. Well, again, I really want to thank public programs and everyone who helped put this on tonight. I really want to say how nice everyone in public programs has been to work with. So thank you very much for your kindness to me. Again, I really want to thank all of you for coming and staying and being part of this and for giving me the opportunity to think through things more myself. It's really a pleasure to see you and to meet you. And um, thank you and good night. <laughs> thank, you. thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. 
If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.